to all of you who are online. We have been studying the Beatitudes throughout these summer months, and today we're going to continue, and we're going to focus on, blessed are those who have pure hearts, for they shall see God. And before we begin, I'd like to introduce you to two characters, Janie and Tarzan. Jane, you know how much I hate living in this city. Yes, I do. Marry me now and come away with me. Oh, Tarzan, we've talked about this so many times. We're getting married in 10 months. I can't leave before that. My school's not finished, and I'm helping my parents wind down their family business. I can't go right now. But I've sacrificed so much staying in this city. Don't you love me anymore? Oh, Tarzan, you know that I love you. Come on. This is not about loving you. This is about commitments that I have, and I can't leave until they're over. We're going to be married in just 10 short months. Am I not more important than your parents? Come away with me. You can finish school online. We can be happy, married together. Tarzan, that's not a fair comparison. You know that. Are you saying no? I'm saying I can't come right now. You can't or you don't want to? I cannot. Jane, I have to leave, but I need you to come with me. I can't live without you. The guilt will be upon you for the rest of your life. What? I'm leaving. What, what, wait, wait, wait! begin, I have a question. Does Tarzan really love Jane? It may be debatable, but that's for another day. What we do know is that, yes, indeed, it's possible that Tarzan really, really loves Jane. However, there's something else going on in his heart at the same time. He's struggling with delayed gratification. He's struggling with the prospect of 10 months without being with Jane and he's doing all he possibly can to avoid that discomfort, even to the extent of manipulating Jane. Do you love me more than my parents? Well, you're going to take the blame if I cannot live any longer. So there's two things going on in his heart. His heart is divided. On this side, as much as he loves Jane, he's got this side over here. He, he loves himself. You know, he's acting a little bit selfish, but he may not see that. There's this tension in his heart. And often, we're like that too. We can be a little bit like Tarzan. And it's all over, all over the place we see these things. Let's take physical fitness, for instance. The vast majority of our population would say, oh yeah, I want to be physically fit. Oh yes, I believe in losing weight. Oh, that's right, I really want to eat good food. We do, we say we do that. But here's the problem. For most of us, not all of us, because some losing weight is a struggle and it is a very complex issue. But for the vast majority of people, here's the problem. Oh, yes, we want that. Our heart is really aimed at losing weight and eating well. But you go over here to this side of our heart and we just want to indulge in that food that we love. And you've got these two things fighting each other in our heart and we have that tension. We are people who like to have our cake and to eat it too. We want one thing, 
but we want the opposite. We believe that we are one thing, but our motives and our actions and our words betray what's really in our hearts. Today, we're going to be considering the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Jesus, in this beatitude, addressed this very issue. We believe that we are one thing, but our actions, sorry, I missed that. I looked somewhere else on my notes. Um, this particular attitude can some, beatitude can sometimes make us squirm in our seats because it really bears op our, open our hearts and a spotlight is shone in, and then we get to see what's really in there. Tarzan may have not recognized that he was acting selfishly, and sometimes we can be like him. I've thought a lot about this verse as I've been preparing, and I've come up with a way of saying it in a different way. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It can sometimes be said, seeing God brings happiness. Purity is a prerequisite to happiness. Sorry, purity is a prerequisite to seeing God. So as I thought about this, and as I thought about this, I realized there's a big question here. And the big question is, why is seeing God such a hack to happiness? Why is seeing God such a hack to happiness? So that is the big question we're going to consider. And if you follow me, I will do my best to address that question. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you look at the screen with the verse, you'll notice that there are some words in red. Heart, pure, and see God. Before we go any further, I think we need to do a little bit of a clarification about these words. The heart, what is the heart? Well, it's the center of our will, our emotions, our thoughts, our desires, our characters, our perspectives, our reactions, essentially our self-identity. It's a place where we exercise autonomy over what we will do and what we will not do, over what we will think and over what we will not think, over what we will believe and over what we will reject. Our hearts are who we are, and what comes out of our heart is our responsibility. So when we give account to our lives, there's going to be no such thing as saying, well, you know, he made me do it, or she provoked me if it wasn't for her, or making excuses. If only I had a job like yours, I could do that. God gives us autonomy over our hearts, so we are responsible for them. Pure. Pure here refers to a wholeness of one kind. One kind. No additives. Nothing else, one kind, as in the case of pure gold. So if I had a bar of pure gold up here, every atom in that bar would be 100% gold. Every iota of that bar would react and have the characteristics of gold. It would all have the same boiling point, and everything else about it would be the same. As soon as I start adding additives, I no longer have pure gold. I may have something that costs a little less, but it's not pure gold. And this is evident everywhere in our society. Go to your typical grocery store. Walk down the baking aisle. What do you see? Pure vanilla, simulated vanilla. 
oh, this one's a lot more expensive, like three times the price, but it's pure vanilla. This one on this side, you're probably looking at water and brown sugar. I'm not sure what else is in there. Go down the cleaning aisle in that same grocery store. You have your dish soap, and then you have the house brand. Well, that house brand is a lot cheaper, but it ends up being expensive water because it's so diluted that its effectiveness just isn't the same. You can have pure wool or you can have acrylic wool. You can have a 100% authentic Rolex watch, or you can have one that looks like it but has inferior parts. The imitation, the mixed, the synthetic, will never meet the standards of the pure. So in a sense, if you put this together, a pure heart is one that is marked by a razor-sharp desire to love God. A pure heart is one that by choice is fully devoted to God, fully, decided, fully desiring the pure life of Christ, fully surrendering our own sinful will to receive God's pure nature. A pure heart does not have any other mixed motivations, any ulterior motives. There's nothing else in that heart complete, competing for lordship. God is first and foremost, period. The desire for God is not tainted by other desires. A pure heart points to that inward soul, not to the outward behavior. Because we can put on that behavior. We can come to church and we can smile and we can do all the right things. But what's that heart? What's that motivation inside our heart? That's what God is looking at. And sometimes, that's why this particular beatitude may make us squirm a little bit, because we may not like what we see. I'm certain Tarzan would have not been happy when someone pointed out to him that he was acting selfishly. To see God, let's clarify that. Well, of course, when you look at the word see, you automatically think of what we can see with our physical eyes. If you're looking up here now, you'll see a black stand. You may be able to see that there's a blue hat on the floor. If you have visual impairment, though, you'll be hearing something, and then you're seeing something in your mind's eye. There's also the notion of when you come to understand something, you finally get something, you say, oh, yeah, I see, I got it. And then there's another form of seeing. And I'll tell you a little bit about this one by telling you a little bit about Bobby. Bobby's six years old, and he's having a wonderful time playing in his backyard, but he gets thirsty so he decides to go inside for a drink of water. He opens up the patio door and steps into that kitchen, and he is overtaken with that wonderful smell of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. Oh, my word, it just fills his whole senses. He's just, wow. He looks over, and there they are, right on the counter. And they're perfect, his favorite kind, with the crispy outer, and the chewy insides, and they're so warm that the chocolate chips are still melting, he reaches over and he hears this voice from somewhere else in the house, Bobby, don't you even think of touching those cookies. How did she see me? Bobby's mesmerized, but mom didn't see Bobby. Mom knows Bobby so well, and mom has such a close communication with Bobby that she can speak into his life. So sometimes when we talk about seeing God, we talk about this closeness that he can reach, and he can say, Bobby, or Tarzan, 
or Sally, I love you. I forgive you. I'll give you a hug right now because I know you're str struggling. Or he can say, that thing you're considering, don't do it. Or that that you just did right now, that motivation really comes from something else other than pure love. So all of this is seeing God. It's to see him in his holiness, his power, his love, to see his greatness. Seeing God gives us a right perspective on our smallness, and it helps us to develop a healthy reverence for God. So let's go over this again. A pure heart is that razor-sharp desire to follow God and to love him. And to see God is to recognize his movements in our lives, to know him and to be known by him, to see him at work. How does this relate to our big question? How is seeing God a hack to happiness? Well, I believe we really need to start with looking at his grandeur. And for that, we're going to look at two scripture verses. The first one will be Isaiah 6, and it was read to you earlier. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, and seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is Isaiah speaking. Isaiah was a prophet to Israel, and he lived about 700 years before Jesus. And a lot of what he prophesied was basically trying to awaken and open the eyes of the Israelites about what they were doing. But before he actually started with all these prophecies, at the very, very beginning of this book, we see this. God actually gave him a vision that he actually saw with his eyes. He got a glimpse of heaven. Let's step into this for a second. Like, put yourself in there. What would you feel like? What does it sound like? The doorposts are shaking. There's thunderous noise as the angels speak. These angels are crying out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He's high and he's exalted. What's your reaction? Well, this is Isaiah's reaction. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. He saw the grandeur of God, and he got a picture that God is so great, and we are so small. As was prayed early er, by Raymond, that yes, it does say in scripture that we should come boldly into the throne of grace. And we can do this because of what Jesus has done for us. But sometimes we take that and then we become a little bit casual with God. We kind of look at him as our buddy and we kind of inch ourselves up so that we're kind of like, mm, you know, we're about that. We're in a good, God's my buddy. We're on the same level. But this verse tells us no. The next verse comes from Exodus chapter 3. And this is Moses, the story of Moses. Moses was in the desert for approximately 40 years, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. And one day, God appeared to him through a burning bush. Now, at first, a burning bush is not that unfamiliar in the desert. I mean, it's hot. It, it 
catches fire, that's not a big deal. But the big deal that caught Moses' attention was that it wasn't being consumed. Now, you all know if you have a campfire or if you have a fireplace and you put a log in it and you come back 20 minutes later, you cannot identify that log. It has been completely consumed and it is ash. But this tree was not consumed. So he steps closer and then he hears the voice. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of jo jo Jacob. And this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Again, we see this great presence of God, heaven intersecting into our physical world that's limited by space and time, and gives uh, Isaiah and then gives Moses a glimpse of heaven. And what's their response? Whoa, I'm undone. Moses hides his face. We have to keep that in mind as we consider this question. Why is seeing God such a hack to happiness? We have to keep in mind that God is so grand and so much bigger and that we are not God. We are very, very small and we have a propensity to do evil. But by the graciousness of God, we'd have the freedom to come into his presence. God is the one who takes that initiative to make us pure by the coming of Jesus. And our job is to have pureness in our desire for God. So let's go, let's go further into this question. Why is seeing God such a hack to happiness? So our first step is looking at his grandeur, that he is grand. But now let's translate this and to see what does it look like on the ground? What does it look like in our normal everyday life? And for that, I'm going to give you two examples. We're going to compare Joseph and we're going to compare the Israelites. We'll start with the Israelites. The Israelites were living in Egypt and they had been in slavery for generations. Egypt was the cultural, social, financial capital. It was the cradle of civilization. And there was a place with many, many deities. They worshipped many gods. They were very religious. Even Pharaoh himself was considered a god. And they had so much power. And by the sheer strength of their brute power, they enslaved the Israelites. And so the life was hard for them. They were beaten. They were to work all day. They had no freedom. And they were beaten quite severely. So life was very difficult. This grand civilization of Egypt was being built on the backs of the Israelites. And they cry out to God, and God answers their prayer. God goes over to the desert and calls Moses. Moses, come here. Let's go to Egypt. I'm going to free my people. And God comes, and Moses comes to Israel, obeys God, and finds that as he uh, speaks with Pharaoh, Pharaoh does not want to let these people go. In fact, he makes life more difficult for them. But every power that's at work in Egypt is challenged, and Jesus overcomes. God overcomes um, every one of those deities, every one of those powers. And in a huge, dramatic display of power and mercy and grace, God exits these people out of the country. Out they go. 
the, the, the Red Sea is parted for them, and off they go through on dry land. And then when they get to the other side, their enemies are chasing them down, and then those enemies are killed. What power. Imagine their happiness, their joy at the moment of their freedom. They've been bound for generations. That morning when they woke up, they were slaves, and they had no idea that their life was going to change that day. And suddenly, they look back, and they've witnessed this firsthand, and they are free. And this is what they did. They danced, and they worshipped God. And they were jubilant, and they said, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is God, and I will exalt him. This is, the, this is the scene here. This is the mood here amongst the Israelite camp. Three days later, as they're walking through the desert, they come to a place and they have no water. What's their response? Moses, what are we supposed to be drinking here? They're complaining. A few more days go by, and this is what they say. The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, you've brought us here into this desert to starve us and the entire assembly to death. Oh, what happened here? These are the people who witnessed the Red Sea parting and they walked through and a few days ago they were singing, God is my salvation. And now they're grumbling, and they're complaining, and they're saying, oh man, maybe we could have had life back in Egypt, forgetting how difficult it was back there. You see, their hearts were divided. They grew up and they were living in this culture with all these deities, and these deities were far and distant, and something that, someone that you had to appease, but my life is my life. The God is not going to affect the way I live, the decisions I make, the attitudes that I have, the outlook that I have, that's me, autonomy. And I think somehow these Israelites, by far, most of them, were like that. Okay, they wanted God. They accepted the grace of God. They accepted those miracles. Oh, thank you. But then they completely forgot God. Their hearts were divided between wanting to be in control of their hearts and having God control their hearts. They did not have that razor-sharp desire for God. So therefore, they could not see God in their circumstances. All they saw was the issue, the problem before them. We have no water, we have no food. They weren't looking through, it, through the eyes of faith that said, whoa, look what God did for us in the past. Will he not take care of us again? Their hearts weren't pure because it weren't divided. How many times can this be said of us? We want God, but we also want to control our lives. We want God, but we also want power. We want God, but we also want something else. We want to hang on to our bitterness. We don't want to let that go, because it hurts so much. We want to nurse our bitterness, and that can tend to destroy us. We want to hang on to our unforgiveness, because there's no way I can forgive not recognizing that that unforgiveness is destroying us. We, we sing our songs and we pray the prayers, but as soon as we experience some kind of discomfort or something that we don't like, we start to complain. We want God, 
but we want something else. We want our cake, and we want to eat it too. We will not have true lasting happiness because life is always bringing trouble our way. Our eyes are not fixed on Jesus. We don't see the world through the lens of Jesus. We want to hang up onto our hurts and our bitterness, and these will blind us to seeing Jesus, and they will rob us of happiness. So we've looked at the Israelites. Now let's move over and compare with Joseph. So Joseph lived before the scene that we just described. Joseph was one of 12 sons of Jacob. He had a younger brother named Benjamin, and he and Benjamin were、uh, full siblings. There were 10 other brothers in the household who shared the same father but had different mothers. Sadly, this family had some issues. And out of that, a lot of jealousy. A lot of jealousy had grown between those brothers. And those 10 brothers absolutely hated Joseph, absolutely hated him. Sad, sadly, in some ways, Jacob did show preferential treatment to, to Joseph, and therefore the brothers hated him more. So there was a lot of jealousy going on. They were shepherds, so the ten brothers went off to take care of their sheep. And in those days, it's not like a nine to five job where you go at nine, you come home at five. You go with the sheep, and you move them from、uh, area to area so that they can graze. And when this area, they've eaten up everything that's up here, you move them on. So you may not come home for a couple of days, or a couple of weeks, or a couple of months. You need to take care of your flock. So this is what happened. The ten brothers had gone off, and they had been away for a while. So Joseph's father says to him, Go check on your brothers, please, and come back and let me know how they're doing. So off he goes. He's going to, take care of his,、uh, he's going to check on his brothers. And it takes him a few days, but he finally finds them. And he's in a distance and he's coming towards his brothers. And his brothers see him. And what do they do? Let's, let's, let's just get rid of this guy. Let's just get rid of the streamer. They're actually plotting to kill their, only, their half brother. Not sure how they could actually do that, but they were doing it. And as Joseph is approaching them, they're developing this plan. And then they finally decide you know what? We're not going to kill him. We're just going to throw him in this well. And that's what they do. He approaches. They overtake him.、Uh, there's a struggle.、There's, Joseph doesn't have a chance. He's one. They're ten. They rip off his coat. He's pleading for mercy. He's pleading for his life. And they have absolutely no compassion, no empathy. They throw their own brother into a cistern. And they sit there, continuing to take care of their sheep. And as they do that, they see a group of Ishmaelites coming across in a caravan. Now, these were people who had come. To gather goods, sell and trade, and then bring these goods into Egypt where they could sell them. So one of the brothers has a great idea. Hey guys, let's, why let him die? Let's sell him off. So they do. They sell Joseph and he becomes a slave. So here's Joseph. He's approximately 18 years old. He woke up that morning as a son of, of、uh, Jacob. Everything was fine. And now all of a sudden, everything is different. Believe me, if those Ishmaelites had paid for him, they didn't let him walk freely. They probably tied him to something so that he wouldn't escape. And he walked to Egypt. And there he is, alone, in a strange place. This is a, this, this is a huge place, Egypt. 
And he was used to the countryside, so there would be different and strange noises and smells, and everything is different. The language is different. There's nobody there that he knows. He's completely alone. But in addition to all that, he's really reeling over this idea. I, I can't believe what happened. My brothers did this to me. How could they? Joseph is sold as a slave, and he becomes a slave to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And while he's there, there's a very interesting statement in the Bible. It says, "And God was with Joseph." It's a real difference between Joseph and the Israelites. Unfortunately for Joseph, life gets even worse for him. Somebody spitefully, falsely accuses him, and he's thrown into jail. And this is not a Canadian jail. This is a dungeon. There was no fair trial. There was no investigation. One comment made by someone that was motivated by spite, and there he is. He's in a dungeon, and he stays there—not for a day or two, or three or four weeks. He's there for a couple of years, at least, more than two years. And then he's miraculously released. Isn't it amazing how God works? The Israelites were slaves. Then all of a sudden, they're free with this miraculous intervention. And Joseph is in jail, and miraculously, he goes from the dungeon to the throne in one day. And again, while he was in jail, the scriptures say that God was with him. Joseph becomes second in power only to Pharaoh himself. How did this happen? He's a big man. He's a big and powerful and important man now in Egypt. But he knew God. He saw God in the dungeon, and now again in the throne. He was able to let go of all that bitterness, of all that baggage of his past, and we know that because when he saw his brothers, do you know what he said to them? "You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good." You see how he was able to see God working through his difficult situations. So we have this group of people, the Israelites, who are slaves. We have Joseph, who's also a slave. We have the Israelites, who are having a very difficult life, and we have Joseph on this side. Who has equally a difficult life? We have the Israelites who are miraculously saved by God, and they witness this power of God, and they are so grateful. And on this side, we see the same thing. Joseph is miraculously raised from the dungeon to the throne. Well, what's the difference between these two? Who has the happier life? Well, I would say it would be Joseph, because Joseph had more resilience. He was able to go through life, and it doesn't mean that life was easy for him. But he was able to let go of bitterness, unforgiveness. He was able to live above his circumstances, because he saw God. His heart was desirous, razor-sharp desire for God, for loving God, for God being first and foremost. And so God was taking him through this, and he was able to see the hand of God in all of this, and that lifted him up. Above his circumstances, so he can thrive, so he wouldn't be a victim of his circumstances. The Israelites, on the other hand, they were kind of like dragging, dragging. Moses had to drag them along. They were always complaining. They were always murmuring. They were always grumbling. They were always worrying. They were always seeing the worst-case scenario. Which one had the happier life? Why is seeing God such a hack to happiness? 
Look at Joseph. Through his joys and sorrows, he had a pure, whole heart desire for God. This allowed him to see God in all his circumstances and to trust him and to grow in faith and to work with God and to let go of those things that had the potential to destroy him. This is a kingdom principle of an undivided heart that Jesus was trying to teach through this beatitude. And if we look at the life of Jesus, we see right through the life of Jesus, an undivided heart. When he was tempted by the devil in the desert, the first temptation that the devil gave him was to satisfy his own personal human needs, to use his divine power to satisfy his own needs. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to satisfy our needs. Yes, we do need to satisfy our needs. But in this case, the devil was tempting him. Hey, use that divinity that you have for yourself. Use that power for yourself. Use it first for yourself. Jesus had that undivided heart. Absolutely no way he was going to do that. The second temptation came along, and the devil said to him, hey, jump off this temple, and you know, the angels will pick you up and carry you. In other words, create this big problem and manipulate God to come to your rescue, and to come to your rescue that would put you in the spotlight. Absolutely no way. God is first and foremost. My desire for being acknowledged, my desire for fame does not play in this. The third temptation that the devil gave Jesus was, look at all these kingdoms. Bow down and worship me and I'll give them all to you. Well, the reality is they were all Jesus's and they were going to be Jesus after he died on the cross and was risen up to be with the Father. They were going to be his again. But you see, the devil was trying to do a shortcut. Avoid the hard stuff. Avoid it. You don't need this. You don't need this. Come and worship me. And again, Jesus said, no way. How does our heart stand up? First of all, is God first and foremost in our heart? Or do we insist on being in control? Can we trust God's goodness, looking to him in every situation? Or are we really depending on ourselves? God is good. Yeah, I can pray to him. But in the day-to-day -day things of life, I'm depending on myself to solve these problems. Do we approach each new challenge with fear? Or do we approach these challenges knowing God is with us? Do we approach things with complaining and blaming as though we were victims? Do we have a healthy perspective of God's grandeur and our smallness? Are we hanging on to any type of bitterness or envy or unforgiveness or any type of distractions? Or maybe we're just complacent. And life is good. Life is easy. I don't really need to see God. And I think sometimes when we live like that, maybe, just maybe, we have an inkling that if we see God, it's going to show something in our motives of our heart that we'd rather just not know is there. Are we enjoying the world so much that we don't want to see this grandeur, that we're settling for being a goldfish in a small little bowl and missing out on the fact that the entire world is us, for us. Divided loyalties will blind us from seeing God. And this does not mean that God is asking us to be perfect. We look at David, for instance, in the Bible. He is called a man after God's own heart. But if we read his story, we realize he made many bad decisions and a lot of sinful decisions. But what did he do as soon as he realized he repented. 
Against you, you only have I sinned, is what he prayed. So God is asking us to have that pure heart, pure, undivided loyalty to God. God is first and foremost, and then we will be able to see God. The divisiveness that we keep in our heart will keep us from complete and full happiness. Let's take a moment of silence now before we go into communion to talk to God about our hearts. This is a very appropriate time just to sit before God and ask him to shed that light into the secret motives of our heart. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you, Jesus, have come and have taught us a principal kingdom in an undivided heart. I thank you that with an undivided heart, we can see you in your grandness, in your holiness, in your awesome power. And that awesome power, Lord God, is not to destroy us, but to love us and to take us into your arms and to show forth to us, Lord Jesus, your great love for us, but also to cleanse us from anything that we're holding on to that essentially will destroy us and will take away from us our happiness. Thank you for your love.